Indeed, it's great to, uh, you know, be all together this morning and um, as a staff, ministry staff, as a staff of the church, we've been so excited, looking forward to um, this Sunday and the opportunity just to gather and worship together. Years ago, um, uh, when I was a youth pastor, centuries ago, uh, you know, um, and I don't remember if any of you knew how to do this or remember doing this. We would send students um, out um, on what we called a bigger and better scavenger hunt. Um, anybody ever be involved in a bigger and better scavenger hunt? Well, for those who aren't, uh, what would happen was we would divide the students up into teams of like five, uh, eight students, and, and then we'd give each of those teams something small, something tiny, insignificant, like, like maybe a paper clip. And we would give them a paper clip, and they would go out into the neighborhoods, and they would knock on a door, and they would ask if uh, they had something that was either bigger or better than that paper clip that they would be willing to trade them for. And so maybe the homeowner would look around, and, and they would find something bigger and better. Maybe it was an orange, you know, something just a little bit bigger, something a little bit better uh, than, that, than that paper clip, and they would trade that orange for that paper clip. And then the students would go to a, the next door, uh, the next house, and, and they would ask, well, do you have something bigger or better than this orange that you're willing to trade? And, um, you know, they would do that house after house, and maybe after six, seven, I don't know, dozen houses. Um, I mean, <laughs> I was always amazed at the items that these students would, would bring back to the church. Um, I mean, I remember bringing back uh, couches, old raggedy couches they would bring back. Uh, they would bring back old TV sets, you know, that were broken, that weren't able to be used. Bring, hey, it's, it's bigger, you know, uh, and they'd bring that back. The biggest item um, that someone actually, a uh, team actually brought back uh, to the church one time in one of these searches was a boat. An old, yeah, seriously, an old rundown boat. I'm not sure, you know, how, you know, they end up dragging it back to the church, you know, and uh, it was amazing. I was always, I, we, the biggest thing, we always had to get rid of it then, you know. It was a way for them to deposit those items. But, you know, sometimes, I tell you that story because sometimes um, in the church, I think, we're tempted to play that same type of game. Uh, face it, I mean, we live in an entertainment, right, entertainment-driven culture. And the desire for bigger and better leaks into the church oftentimes. Um, you know, we, we, we love the flash and the splash <laughs> in our culture. We, we love the wow. And sometimes that, that comes into the church, and, and so we're attracted to the celebrity speakers and to the slick worship services and to the, you know, fancy coffee cafes. <laughs> now, mind you, there's nothing wrong with those things until the entertainment, until the, the, the comfort <laughs> that they bring becomes our focus rather than on God and on worship of God. In our culture, see, we want to impress. Um, the bigger, the better. We, we, we love the show. But Paul reminds us that, that that's not God's plan. 
that God instead, his plan uses the meek. His plan uses the weak to display his power. I invite you this morning to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Um, We're going to be walking our way through this very interesting letter of the Apostle Paul's 2 Corinthians. In fact, my guess is you probably haven't read uh, through 2 Corinthians for a a long time, if you've ever read through 2 Corinthians, because it's not a very uh, well-known, well-read letter. 2 Corinthians, where we will encounter a city here, a city of Corinth, that I think you and I, (laughs) living in our culture, that we can relate to. A city that was known for the love of the wow. Now, let me give you a background a little bit. Corinth was originally a Greek uh, city-state, but in 146 B.C., it was destroyed by Rome, um, and it remained in ruins for uh, about 100 years until 44 B.C. when Julius uh, Caesar rebuilt it as a Roman colony. So when the Apostle Paul, catch this, when the Apostle Paul visits that city in A.D. 49 or 50, that city was just really over, uh, just barely over 100 years old. Yet over those 100 years, Corinth had become the third most important city in uh, the Roman Empire, with about, experts say, about the 80,000 to 100,000 residents in that city. Why was it so important? Well, because, uh, mainly because of its location. Um, um, See, Corinth was located on the Isthmus of Greece, and it was positioned in such a way uh, that it had become kind of the, the crossroads of Greece, um, you know, and it became very quickly this ancient, free-willing, uh, wheeling boomtown. Um, now, like many of the boomtowns uh, during the American Western expansion, um, materialism and pride and self-confidence filled the, the city uh, of, of Corinth. Its population was largely of immigrants um, and opportunists, freedmen, that is, uh, individuals who once had been slaves but now were free. Um, uh, it was full of, the city was full of ex-Roman uh, soldiers. All of these were in search of a better life. And like our American frontier, the, the motto, pull, up, uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, <laughs> was rampant there in that city of Corinth. Parallels uh, with our 21st Western um, culture abound when you look at this city of Corinth. Sports and entertainment were preeminent. I mean, in fact, the city um, uh, of, uh, it was the city of the Isthmus Games, which was second only to the Olympic Games. It had an 18,000 seat uh, theater and a 3,000 seat um, uh, concert hall. Corinth quickly um, developed a culture of self-appreciation and self-gratification. Um, rugged individualism and, and self-sufficiency were, were encouraged and cheered. Boasting about one's accomplishments um, became the norm. I mean, I think if, if they had a modern-day um, 
social media like we do, you know, um, the number of likes and, and views would have been celebrated. Now, I'm not sure, but my guess is that they probably there in the city of Corinth probably had their own uh, ancient version of Corinth's Got Talent. <laughs> I mean, uh, Corinth, they love the show. They love the wow. Wealth and status, that was the name of the game. And the similarities between our modern-day Western culture and Corinth culture were so striking, in fact, that California uh, Pastor Ray Stedman um, used to call Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, he used to call them the first and second Californians. (laughs) And into this world, God sent Paul as his apostle. So Paul goes and visits, but that visit doesn't go very well with Paul. And he leaves very quickly. In fact, he refers to it. You'll find it as we go through this book here, this letter. You'll find him referring to that visit as a painful visit in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Why painful? Because evidently there were some some enemies of Paul that showed up there in that church of Corinth. Corinth. Jewish apostles, as they called themselves, and they had arrived after Paul had planted that church and before Paul came back for his second visit, before he came back for this painful visit. And, and they had arrived there, and, and these apostles, as, again, as they called themselves, um, they were busy trying to persuade these new believers there in Corinth that Paul's theology was in error. Specifically, They were trying to convince the people there that the Mosaic Covenant was still in force. And they called into question Paul's apostleship, Paul's authority. I mean, they asked questions like, listen, if if Paul was for real, I mean, if he is really an apostle, I mean, why did he have to suffer so much? Uh, They ask questions like, I mean, if Paul's really a a true apostle, where's his great success? (laughs) I mean, why didn't Paul come to you with letters of recommendation like everyone else does? Why was Paul's ministry so lacking in in power? Um, Why was his preaching so dull and, and boring? I mean, if Paul's ministry was truly filled with the Holy Spirit, I mean, where was the wow in his ministry? Paul, see, after he visited, he left after that painful visit, wounded and hurt, and returned then to Ephesus, and then with great emotion, he wrote another letter, a letter that Um, in fact, has been lost. Uh, We don't have that letter, but it was a letter that he refers to, again, in 2 Corinthians here, in uh, chapter, uh, in fact, in in verse 4 of the second chapter. Look with me. It says this, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. (laughs) Clearly, Paul, in that lost letter, he called for repentance. 
And praise God, um, the majority of those in that church uh, responded positively. They, they repented and they returned to Paul and, and returned to his gospel. Yet there were still a few holdouts. <laughs> there are still a few in, the, in that church that continued to reject Paul and his authority. As a result of their mostly positive response then, Paul then sends this letter, okay? Catch this. He then sends 2 Corinthians he sends it about in A.D. 55, which would have been about five years after he had first planted the church. Now, that's a quick overview of what we're going to run into here in 2 Corinthians. And I got to tell you, as we study this letter this winter and this spring, we will discover that it is, of all of Paul's writings, the most emotional, most personal. Nowhere is Paul's heart so torn so exposed as in this letter. It carries both the tone of, of, of injured love and at the same time of a wounded, relentless love for that church. And I got to tell you, if you've ever um, invested in another person's life, I mean, spiritually invested. I mean, maybe you led them to Christ or maybe you, um, uh, you know, met with them and, and you encouraged them in their faith and then you watched as someone or, or, or something turned them away and led them from faith. Second Corinthians, I got to tell you, it's for you. <laughs> it's for you. If you're one who really cares about the gospel and cares for souls, you'll find this letter to be captivating, encouraging. So let's begin just with Paul's greeting this morning, verses 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, which with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's purpose... I think we can find it here. He makes it very clear in these first two verses, his purpose for writing this letter. First of all, he reasserts his authority. Do you see that? He cuts right to the issue, doesn't he? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. An apostle is an emissary um, who's authorized and commissioned to carry out a personal mission on behalf of someone else. I want you to notice here that Paul makes it very clear that his authority as an apostle came directly from the Messiah, from the risen Christ. Um, you say, well, when did that happen? <laughs> well, it happened on the, the road to Damascus. And that call that happened on that road to Damascus, Damascus was in accordance with God's will. See, Christ is the one who is responsible for sending Paul. And God is the one who has made that sending possible. Paul makes this simple, straightforward declaration as he opens his, his letter because he wants to remind these readers that his divinely appointed role and authority uh, among God's people, they come from God. To reject the authority of one who is an apostle of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus 
by the will of God, <laughs> it's to reject the authority of God himself. Paul wants to make that clear. And next what Paul does is he addresses the church. Do you notice that? Despite the past problems and recent rebellion, he reminds them that they are the church of God. Um, this um, church in Corinth was, was God's church. It wasn't Paul's church. It wasn't Apollos's or, uh, you know, it, it wasn't Timothy's. It was nobody else's. It was God's church, no one else's. You know, I think of that often as I think about our church here. You know, although I've been your pastor here at First Free for over 20 years, I got to tell you, oftentimes I'm reminded, this is not my church. <laughs> it's God's church. I mean, there have been other pastors, other leaders through this church's 139 years that have, have, have served here. And there will be, God willing, many other pastors and leaders who will serve here at First Free um, for the years to come. Because this is God's church. It's God's church alone. <laughs> Nobody else's. And see, when we understand that truth, we then understand that our mutual God-ordained function is as an assembly of God's people in God's presence to hear and obey God's word. Now, ironically, if you read this, um, this initial greeting, ironically, Paul also calls these believers, you see this? Saints. Saints. Um, that's interesting, don't you think? I mean, they're saints. Not because of their past behavior, but because they were in Christ as demonstrated by their repentance. See, saints are not necessarily um, those who have attained some, you know, high degree of spirituality, but for those who belong to God and therefore respond to God's call for obedience. And as we go through this letter, I got to tell you, as we go through this, this letter, it's going to be important for all of us to continue to come back to this designation, saints. Because, friends, that's who you are. Saints. <laughs> and then Paul concludes um, in verse 2 um, with his prayer wish for them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. In our English translations, I got to tell you, um, it's impossible for us really to hear the wordplay here that, that Paul uses. Basically, where the readers would expect him to say hello, um, Paul instead wishes them grace. Two words that are very close together. And he wishes them continuing experience of God's merciful grace in their life. The grace of, uh, of forgiveness. Grace of deliverance from the power of sin. The grace of eternal life. And he can do that because of what Christ did on the cross. Christ's death on the cross makes God's grace possible. Of course, the greeting also includes God's peace. That is, shalom, a well-being when all things are right with God. 
a possibility also granted by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Charles Stanley once wrote, Grace and peace are twin sisters, grace being the firstborn. Where grace abounds, peace thrives. Where grace is stunted, peace shrivels. (laughs) Now that's Paul's opening greeting to this uh, uh, Corinthian church. Um, So you say, well, well, Sutton, what what should we look for as we we, uh, study this letter? Well, as I've already mentioned, um, this letter is by far the most emotional of Paul's letters. Um, We'll find not only uh, that Paul defend his apostolic ministry, but he will also argue for the truth of the new covenant in Christ. He'll refute his opponents, his opponents who were pushing the old covenant, who were uh, promising the, the, these Corinthians believers uh, uh, deliverance from their sufferings. They won't have to suffer anymore, you know, um, who were promising also a more powerful experience, uh, you know, with the Holy Spirit. And we will watch Paul as he confronts the popular culture of his day. Where the motivation for participating in those days in organized religion was that they might get health and they might get wealth and they might get social standing. (laughs) And Paul shows instead that the true ministry of the Spirit, it comes through meekness, comes through weakness. In a culture that celebrated the splash and, and flash, Paul argues that the gospel doesn't belong to the front pages of the newspapers. We'll watch him. We'll watch him accept the charge that he is weak, but then he'll turn it around <laughs> and show that it's through our weakness that God demonstrates his surpassing power. In fact, let me give you some examples Um, through this wonderful book, Um, examples of this truth. Look with me. Um, I think I got it on the screen for you. Uh, Chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, not but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying the body of the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Through our weakness, God demonstrates his power. Uh, turn over or look again with me at uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 23. says this, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far uh, more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a a day I was adrift at at, at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from the rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship. 
through many sleepless nights in the hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is made to fail, fall, and, and, and am I indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Through our weakness, Paul says, God demonstrates his surpassing power. And then, of course, his famous declaration that you find in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. He says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a fictional story. It's a fiction. (laughs) Um, But it's an interesting story. It's a story about a mother who wanted her young child Um, young son to progress at his uh, playing the piano and so she bought tickets to uh, world renowned uh, concert pianist's performance Uh, um, and when they came to that performance that night they they found their seats near the front of the of the concert hall and eyed the majestic Steinway that was up there on the, the platform The mother got distracted talking to a friend off to the side and the boy quietly slipped away out of his seat. When the eight o'clock, when eight o'clock arrived, the spotlight came on and the audience quieted and only did, only at that point did they notice this boy now sitting up on the front, on the piano bench in front of the piano, innocently picking out on the piano, twinkle, twinkle, little star. His mother gasped, as you can imagine. But before she could retrieve her son, the master appeared on the stage and and quickly moved to the keyboard. Don't quit, he said. Keep playing. Leaning over, the master reached down his left hand and began to uh, filling in the, the, the bass part. Soon, his right arm reached around the other side, encircling the child to add uh, uh, running obligato. Together, the old master and that young novice, they held the crowd mesmerized. I know it's a, it's a fictional story, but I got to tell you, it demonstrates and illustrates uh, that in our lives, unpolished and weak though we may be, it's the master who surrounds us and whispers in our ear time and time again, don't quit, keep playing. And as we do, he augments uh, and uses our human weaknesses and our frailties and our sufferings to put on display his amazing beauty and power. Listen, a violin in my hand (laughs) will get you some squeaky noise. But a violin in Itchcock Perlman's hand will get you the music of the masters. Marble in my hand, that's just an ugly uh, dirt-covered stone. But, 
Marble in Michelangelo's hand will get to magnificent David. A basketball in my hand, it's worth about $29.95. But a basketball in Shaq O'Neal's hand is worth about $30 million. A tennis racket in my hand, well, okay, so-so. <laughs> but a tennis racket in the Williams sisters' hands is a tennis champion. A golf club in my hand, well, look out, there's trouble ahead. Uh, but a golf club in Jack Nicholas's hand is a master's champion because it all depends on whose hands it's in. A rod in my hand may beat off the dogs, but a rod in Moses' hand will part the red seas of your life. A jawbone of a donkey in my hand is the remains of a, of a dead donkey, but a jawbone in Samson's hand will destroy the Philistines. A slingshot in my hand, well, that's only a, a kid's toy. But a slingshot in David's hand will drop the Goliaths in your life because it all depends on whose hands it's in. Spit clay in my hand and all you'll get is a little mud cake. <laughs> but spit clay in Jesus' hand and it'll open the eyes of the blind. Two fishes and Five loaves of bread will get you a couple of fish sandwiches, and it's in my hand. But in Jesus' hand, it will feed 5,000. Nails in my hand might get you a little birdhouse. But nails in Jesus' hand, hanging on the cross between two thieves on a hill called Calvary, is salvation to the world because it all depends on whose hands it's in. Friends, I got to tell you, we will learn a lot in this wonderful letter of 2 Corinthians. And I got to tell you, admittedly, we have a lot to learn, don't we? But I don't want you to miss this one key lesson that you'll see running throughout this letter. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not depend on splash and flash. <laughs> we're in the hands of God, and when we're in the hands of God with all of our weaknesses he will put his power on display. And listen, the gospel, it's not about impressing with a wow, but about impacting with God's power. May God's grace and peace be multiplied upon God's church and all of the saints here at First Free. Let's pray. Father, Would you forgive us for working so hard to impress? Forgive us for seeking above all else the wow. Father, we are weak. We admit that. We are frail. We admit that. We are broken. We admit that. We ask, God, that you would use our broken lives to put on display your great power through our weaknesses show your glory we pray these things in your son's precious and holy name amen